Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, this is Colin. No doubt you know there are conversations going on all over the place about the changing role of the press in the era of President Trump. This is another one of those conversations, but what makes it a little bit different is that the staff that produces this show is going to chime in. A little bit later, you're going to hear all of us talk about how we perceive the mission of this show. You're also going to hear a journalist who got fired for having too many opinions, and you're going to hear Matt Taibbi, who's always had a lot of opinions and has turned into kind of a journalism superstar as a result. But let's start out with our first segment. Virginia Heffernan is a a cultural critic and one of the hosts of Slate's Trumpcast podcast, which has become a kind of indispensable thing for some of us. It's a thing that didn't exist a while ago. It started up during the campaign, and now it's one of those things that people like me think, well, what what would life be like if there were no Trumpcast? And (laughs) I don't have a satisfactory answer to that. Although, Virginia, maybe to start there. So this didn't happen yesterday, but I mean, I'm so old that when I was growing up, you know, there was Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley and (laughs) and stuff like that. And and so that was where news came from. uh, And you just had to decide how you felt about what they what was being said. And I mean, people like William F. Buckley existed, you know, but I, I mean, now it's sort of like Red Sox and Yankees. Right. I mean, you root for one team and not the other. So as in, indispensable as I find Trump cast, it would be regarded as a poisonous flower by other people. I think that's right. I mean, we, we've we heard, so Jacob Weisberg started the show and the idea of Trump cast was, if you can cast your mind back to a year ago, it was to cover the unlikely candidacy of this reality TV star and real estate developer named Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And the idea was that it would go off the air when he didn't get the nomination. So he got the nomination, and it stayed on for a little longer. And the night of the election, we had a Trumpcast final party to say goodbye to the show. And I was standing next to the producer of the show, Jason DeLeon. And as it became clear that Trump was going to stay in the picture longer, Jason said, Looks like I've got a job in 2017. (laughs) And I think that highlights something that really intrigues me, which is that in every way that Donald Trump is a disturbing presence on the American landscape, he's also kind of beneficial to the same group of people, uh, and not just on the American landscape. I mean, if you're the prime minister of Australia and he insults you and treats you like crap, you know, I mean, your poll ratings can conceivably go up. And obviously we know that the ACLU is able to raise money in record numbers. That's right. And in journalism... Subscriptions are going up. Stock prices are going up. Public radio contributions are in some cases going up. And these new forms are being invented. A whole bunch of skill sets and ideas are going to come out of Trump cast that that maybe came out of it or arose out of bitter necessity that in some way will will be passed on and be beneficial to journalism. You know, this presidency is a complete audit, personal audit for (laughs) all of our beliefs about democracy, about liberalism, about showmanship, about lies, about, you know, the, the ground of our existence as Americans. And it was a, it's a lot of things that were invisible to us that we took for granted, you know, trying to think what are, the, what are borders, what's immigration, 
What does the country stand for? What are we doing as citizens? And asking ourselves those questions in every part of our lives. I mean, you see it happening in corporate America. What is the responsibility of Starbucks, of technology? Twitter, for the first time, is really thinking seriously about maybe banning real Donald Trump, maybe banning Donald Trump from Twitter. What is their responsibility for giving him a platform or not? You know, a platform that could could end up being devastating if he provokes a foreign leader. So, I, you know, I think it's really this soul-searching time. But I think, you know, so as you're saying, so some of these older dichotomies, it's not that they've broken down, but they're just much more complicated. The terrain has shifted under people's feet. And I think also, you know, this whole question of how neutral or impartial media is ever going to be is also shifting underneath our feet. I mean, look, as I say, I'm so old. I remember when Walter Cronkite said, you know, I don't think this Vietnam thing is going very well. I just went over there. Yeah. It doesn't look so great. Yeah, and that's pe- right. People were agog. Walter Cronkite just told us that he thought something, you know, and because we just weren't used to that. You know, he had a point of view on this. That was an earth shaking event in and of itself. And now I don't know. Like, I, I, so I work in public radio. I have a friend. Yeah, I, I'm not going to mention his name. I'm, I have a friend okay. who, who appears prominently on. Well, I guess I can say the show Fresh Air. OK, so he's on Fresh Air sometimes. Okay. And I can't remember the details, but he'd like, I don't know. He told them he'd given a contribution to like NARAL or something, something like that. And they yeah. freaked out. And they said, you can't do that. You know, you can't give uh, money to NARAL because like we don't yeah. have. And I'm, and I'm thinking, does anybody seriously not think they know how Terry Gross votes in national elections? I mean, <laughs> what, what are we what idea are we sticking up for here? You know, it's funny. Well, first off. Walter Cronkite is a great example because I always think there's certain intonations and ways of reporting that we lost in the transition from what I think of as Walter Cronkite to to Peter Jennings, just because he was my Mm go-to at ABC when I was growing up. Walter Cronkite had this wonderful way of making it quite clear that when he morally objected to something, even when he wasn't explicitly being critical of policy in Vietnam. I remember there's one... uh, I just studied over and over one time he was talking about the problem of, as he put it, drugs and alcohol, (laughs) you know, where Jennings had this very clinical mid-Atlantic accent where nothing, you know, he would he would go into a subject later. I I think of uh, news reporters in the same vein talking about transvaginal exams or talking about transgender this or that. They're like coming up to a subject it has got to stir their limbic systems a little bit. <laughs> and instead, they move to complete sang-froid, cold blood around those things. So maybe, in a way, we're getting back a moral vision, you know, that, that, that Cronkite had much more, talked against much more of a backdrop of consensus about some of these subjects. The destruction of the cities was not something people were going to cheer on when he spoke. And now, you're right, I think we're surfacing some of those opinions, you know, David Remnick, who edits The New Yorker, said recently, this isn't a question of politics. This is an emergency. Mm-hmm. We need to report on this like we're reporting on, you know, the nuclear reactor breakdown in, in Japan or, you know, Hurricane Sandy in New York. Like, this is destroying values that are very important to us, and we need to speak up for them. 
Okay, so Virginia Heffernan, we're almost done. You have a terrible cold. I feel like Steve Bannon making you talk, you know? Like, I feel like Steve Bannon and I've got you at a black site. Talk some more, Virginia. I don't care how much it hurts. Exactly. We're going to deny you more NyQuil. <laughs> so, so I have one last thing I want to bring up. So there's this whole word that came out during the campaign, not a new word, but normalizing. And, and so we're getting it now in journalism. Like, I just for having a conversation on the air last week about Neil Gorsuch, you know, I had people tweeting at me saying, you're normalizing Trump. And I'm thinking, well, he's mm-hmm. the president and he appointed, uh, nominated the Supreme Court justice. And I talked about it. I don't know. I don't really have that many other choices. I didn't want to normalize yeah. anything in particular. But my answer to that, and I'd love to hear what you think. I feel like if that's a problem, then let's normalize everything. Let's normalize the word impeachment. Let's normalize the 25th Amendment, which is the fourth part of which has to do with the removal of a president for reasons of unfitness or unable to carry out his duties. So, yeah. you know, maybe we just need to talk about more stuff, not less stuff because we're worried about normalizing something. It's very funny. It is interesting that even before the idea of, well, even even before the inauguration, there was discussion of that same root word norm. There's a lot of conversation about this is not a normal candidate. So, you know, where I think about why Americans don't care about Trump's lying is that, you know, potentially what Bannon and Trump are up to is a complete inversion of normalcy. But, you know, either for reasons that they're just poltergeists or because they actually <laughs> suspect that the normal establishment you know, is destructive to these so-called Judeo-Christian values that Steve Bannon purports to represent, is that, you know, this has been an effort to, a case for the abnormal, a case for black is white and white is black. I mean, it is amazing to hear, it's almost like sometimes when you have a movie critic that you always disagree with, Mm -hmm. they're a very good barometer for what movie you're going to (laughs) like. If they don't like it, you will, and vice versa. Well, sometimes when Trump speaks, I'm just like he says, you know, if he says the media didn't cover these 78 terrorist attacks enough, it's a good bet that they did cover them a lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, he really does. He, he doesn't shade the truth. He completely upends it. Well, Virginia Heffernan, you're wonderful to do this with us. Virginia Heffernan, if you, if you loved her now, imagine what she's like when she doesn't have a 102-degree temperature. She's <laughs> that right. much better, and she's one of the hosts of Slate's <laughs> Trumpcast podcast. Thanks for being with us today, Virginia. Thank you so much. It was so good to talk to you. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to bring you some special audio of Virginia Heffernan using her neti pot, but mainly the four of us who put together this show together as a team effort. We're going to talk to you in a way we never have before and talk among ourselves about how we perceive these questions. As I exit the house, I escape the box. Got my pen in my pad, so a couple of notes I got to picture the world in a different view. Got my tape recorder to record everything I pursue. So, I don't know. You should – I mean, you're the host. Oh, so I should do a host thing? I think you probably should, yes. Okay. So it made sense since you're listening to this show and we're talking about how the press or the news media covers this particular moment in time. It made sense to have a discussion for your benefit about how we think about this on this show. So I have gathered together all the people who work on this show as producers. That would include Jonathan McNichol. Betsy Kaplan and Josh Nalea, they're all here in the studio with me. And we thought we would just briefly talk about how we interpret our job and our mission and how we understand our job to have changed or not changed at all as a result of what's happened in the current political climate. So, Jonathan, where should we begin? Well, I think we should actually begin with you, Colin. Okay. 
I, I think I think it would be good to get you on the record saying what you think your role is, your kind of point of view. Okay, so one thing that I could say is, I mean, I'm a little different from a lot of public radio hosts because I came here with baggage. Uh, I had already been a columnist writing my opinions, and I'd had a show for 16 years on commercial radio where I was kind of the house liberal on a conservative radio station. So coming in here... Uh, you know, it didn't make any sense to pretend that I was neutral about stuff. And then, you know, so that's been the case for the last seven years uh, of doing this show. And then during this election cycle, I very early on felt as though we were in the middle of something kind of sui generis that really needed to be talked about that way, that this wasn't a simple case of any kind of recognizable Republican running against a recognizable Democrat, that this was a candidacy unlike anything I'd ever seen before, and that this is now, you know, a few weeks in a presidency unlike anything I've ever seen before. And, and so we start there. You know, I think we don't want to do a show that's simply an expression of those thoughts. You know, we want to do a show that explores a lot of different ways of looking at this moment and at this presidency. But I'm not kidding anybody. I mean, everybody knows what I think. So my other main concern is is then for you two other guys, Betsy and Josh, mm-hmm. um, it's the same thing. It's It's we're now doing this job in this new situation that didn't exist before that just by sort of happenstance, none of us have ever done this job in a Republican administration before. And it's interesting that we're doing this job on public radio with a host who is left-leaning. Although, could, could I butt in and just yeah. shape that question? Yeah. I feel like if we were doing this show and Jeb Bush were president, I, we wouldn't even have this conversation. Right. Well, that's, mm-hmm. that's, I, that's, my, that's my huge point. How mm-hmm. much of this is ideological and how much of it is just that we're afraid the world is going to hell or something. Um, and, and, and so how much do you guys worry about that? I feel it's, I think that we're in a very different situation and I worry about it a lot. I've lost sleep over it. And, you know, I sometimes struggle. You, you mean the situation itself? The situation itself, yeah. I do. And I struggle sometimes because I know I talk about it all the time at home and with friends and to the point where people get tired of it. And it's not necessarily even in a political sense. It's more of my own fear of what will happen because I don't know what will happen. This is different than anything I've seen in my lifetime. And I've, I'm older than almost everybody except for Colin here. So I guess I've struggled with how much we should be talking about it. Even on the scramble, I felt lost even after the election, wondering how much of this should be all Trump all the time and how much we should introduce other subjects. Well, I, I think, you know, in some ways that there are certain occasions under certain administrations when it's okay to, to take a stance when you recognize something is happening that's out of the norm, that's that's so far, you know, left of or right of what most people consider normal, appropriate behavior from a, a president that you can take a stance. And I, and I think that our, at least I would assume that our, our listeners would, would expect that from us, would want that from us. Uh, they wouldn't want us to be silent when we see something happening that, you know, we think is, is inappropriate, we think is dangerous. Um, I do want to say quickly that one of the things that I'm proud of, I think we have to ask ourselves in, in any situation whether whether my name is Terry Gross or, or Ira Glass or Lucy Nalpothanchel or John Dankosky, everybody has to ask themselves, what is our show good at? What do we do that we do well? And on this show, there's sort of two things that we've done a lot of. One of them is the show we do on Mondays where we really look at what happened over the weekend and, and try to understand it through the lens of various experts. 
And that's been the focus of that has been sharpened and unified to be mostly about the Trump presidency, certainly since the time of the inauguration. And then the other thing we do is a kind a kind of thinking about small strands of any particular picture. So one of the things that we've done in the last two or three weeks, we've done a show about Ayn Rand because in some ways she's like this intellectual muse for some of the people who are big players in the current situation. We did a show about eugenics because there are actually little sort of strange jingling noises uh, coming out of the present moment that sound like some of the arguments for eugenics in, in the past. We did a show about the notion that white people have lost ground that fueled some of the rhetoric and some of the spirit of the the Trump's surgence, I guess it isn't a resurgence, but the Trump surge during the electoral cycle. So, and you know, so these aren't sort of kind of on the nose stories about what Trump is doing right now. It's more about what does this climate really consist of? You start pulling it apart to its, into its little particles. What are those particles? And it, I'm really proud of those shows. I'm skipping three or four of them, the other ones that we've done. But because uh, I can't remember them, <laughs> but, but I think those are really good shows. And you're, you're you're getting at something which I struggle with sometimes. And I think maybe some of the other producers do too. You mentioned a few of the shows in which, you know, we we brought on some guests that that had a particular position on a topic that you could you know maybe make an argument for having brought on somebody with the opposing view. The white recrudescence show, for example. This gets to the idea of the difference between taking a a political stance and taking a moral stance. And I think, you know, few would argue that it's not okay to take a moral stance. I think that's a good thing. But taking a political stance on something, it gets a little bit trickier. You know, and I struggle with that. And Betsy, I think, you know, one yeah. of the things that we struggle a lot with, particularly, I mean, we do make a real affirmative effort to pull in some other views. Yeah. I'm, and Josh is just saying that when we were talking about this earlier, uh, we did a show which included four Republicans who were Trump voters. It was very difficult to to get them to trust me. So I had some names, and those people shared other names with me. So I had plenty of people to call. But everybody that I called had a problem with me. They didn't trust me as a person. They didn't trust the station. They immediately assumed it was a liberal bent that was not only different from them, but that it was somebody that was going to hurt them in some way or, or was out to get them or catch them in some way or make them look foolish. Um, so that was somewhat of a wake-up call, and it wasn't just one person. It was everyone that I spoke to. I'm, I'm wondering how McNichol feels about representing different sides on his shows and, and how he sort of handles that. I, the thing that you brought up about about um, moral imperatives, I think a lot about things that there are things that are happening that are objectively bad, and then there are things that are happening that are subjectively bad or not. But the objectively bad ones are easy to focus on because of their objectivity, like lying is bad, corruption is bad. And I think that plays out in that you get a lot of, like the travel ban story, for instance, has turned into like a process story. It's all about how that happened now and less about the effects of it because how it happened is objectively bad. And that part makes me nervous that we'll lose track of the actual policies and things and just talk about how they how they happen. And there's also a question when we're trying to figure out sort of how to present different sides of different arguments or which arguments to give a voice to, to sort of ask the question what kind of a show this is. And it's a very different kind of show than I think exists out there, um, at least not that I've heard in other stations. And to try to figure out, you know, is this a news show? Is this a talk show? Is this a, a show for opinions and entertainment or education and enlightenment? Like, what is the purpose of this show? And sort of, you know, I hate to put a label on it, but 
but sort of knowing that or knowing what listeners think this show is for would would help me as a producer. Try it, to, it's 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 all those things. It's all those yeah. things plus poop jokes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I believe about this show is that there is a way in which there's a sort of a Potter Stewart way in which we we know. When a topic is right for us to do, we just, we know it when we see it. There, it was, there'd be no way to set up, draw up a list of parameters that define it, but we know it when we see it. And we also know that we're going to approach it differently. So I'll, I'll mention a couple of shows we've got on the drawing board. Josh is working on a show about Melania Trump right now. Now, this is not going to be a show where we make fun of Melania Trump or, you know, I mean, we may explore some things about Melania Trump that are humorous, but it's certainly... Well, I, nobody ever has any idea uh, what Josh uh, is doing or how he's working, so I don't really know what the show is going to be like. But uh, but I'm assuming it's going to be a very thoughtful and interesting show and uh, to explore the Slovenian side of it and a lot of other sides besides, you know, what makes her different from other first ladies. Our, our conversations about it have been mostly how, about how sympathetic we are to Melania. So, right. Yeah. And Betsy and I have begun talking about a show about whether people are getting sick from I mean, like physically sick from yeah. stressing about all this stuff. And we found some public health people already who are really looking into there's sort of a sociology of medical problems and a medicine of the sociological environment. And we're beginning to talk about somewhere in the future doing that show. Again, that's a show that right away when I thought about it, I knew we should do the show. I knew that Betsy, who's a, a nurse, should be the person who, who works on it with me. And, and I, I don't think it's going to be like, oh, look at what this horrible man is doing. He's giving us all you know, colitis, it's going to be, <laughs> well, maybe that is what the show <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, it doesn't start out with that. It starts out with we're observing something at this moment, yeah. and we're trying to look at, look at it in a way that we don't think most shows would, but we would. Well, that's how we talk around the newsroom. But another thing that people are talking about, or public radio newsrooms around the country, is the story of Lewis Wallace, a radio journalist who, until last Monday, January 30th, was a reporter at American Public Media's Marketplace, which we should mention airs here on WNPR every night. But not with Lewis Wallace anymore. So what happened? Well, Lewis Wallace was hired at Marketplace in 2016. One of the things that Lewis was asked to do, in addition to being a reporter, was to blog on a site called Medium, which is the place where you can kind of do different kinds of opinion writings. But that was sort of kind of the job. Part of the job was to do this, you know, a little bit more opinion oriented and self-revealing writing at Medium until Lewis Wallace did a post called Objectivity is Dead and I'm Okay with It. Lewis said, neutrality isn't real. Neutrality is impossible for me, and you should admit that it is for you, too. This occasioned a set of conversations with the people who run Marketplace. They didn't like the post. They said that it violated the, the ethics code of Marketplace, and Lewis was suspended as a result of that and told to take the post down. That's what Lewis did. On Friday, two days later, Lewis put the post back up. That meant that on Monday, January 30th, Lewis was fired. So we asked Lewis to come on our show and to kind of update us on this and explain a couple of things that we didn't quite understand. So Lewis Wallace is with us now. And I guess my first question is, you know, you got suspended. You took the post down as part of that. And then two days later, you put the post back up. Why would you put the post back up? Um, a few reasons. Uh, the main one was that I felt like this conversation about both about journalistic neutrality and about how we work as journalists in the quote-unquote post-fact or alternative fact world was one that I felt was really important to carry on publicly. And my theory was that uh, that could be something that would actually kind of strengthen Marketplace's relationship with the public. I thought if 
someone else at Marketplace kind of disagreed or had questions about what I was raising, that my suggestion was that we uh, carry on that conversation out in the open and let people know, you know, we're, we're just people, we're all trying to figure this out, we have these questions, and that, that could be something to actually help kind of build or rebuild the public trust as well as reach audiences that we're not already reaching in terms of kind of diversifying our audience and being more present online. This at least was allegedly about the marketplace's ethics code, which they were saying asserted a belief in objectivity and neutrality although I gather neither word actually appears in that code. Let me ask you this. Was the disagreement they had with you that you said it's time to maybe set aside some of these uh, canons of objectivity and neutrality and they didn't agree? Or did you say things about, say, President Trump that they felt violated the canons of objectivity and neutrality? Was it an argument about the policy or was it an argument about you violating the policy in some other way or both? There was an element, I would say, of both. I think some of it was this sort of fundamental disagreement. I was told, you know, Marketplace does believe in objectivity and neutrality, and um, we don't want that represented by you as one of our reporters in any sort of different way. And, and then the other thing, so my post didn't really specifically speak about President Trump himself uh, very much or about any kind of policy issues. And, and I actually uh, agree with and, you know, w- would continue to abide in my future work with the idea that if I'm covering a particular politician or a particular policy issue, it's probably not in the best interest of my credibility or my listeners for my main approach to that to be taking a stance on that policy issue, you know, unless I want to do advocacy journalism, which isn't the type of journalism that I do per se, but more sort of speaking to issues around if we do focus our stories on marginalized voices and we focus our coverage on telling the truth in this era, that might be politicized by others in sort of a parallel way to how you know, my identity as a transgender person, while it's sort of foundational to who I am, can be politicized by someone else. And I, there was a specific line in the piece that I wrote where I said, you know, if fully representing the communities that we work in means that we are called politically correct or leftist or liberal, we shouldn't worry about that. Marketplaces fear, I think, was that that, that line would be perceived as saying that we are all leftists or liberals or, you know, politically correct over in public radio. And, um, of course, I don't think that, and, and nor do I think that we should be. I believe it's really, really important to have a variety of perspectives in terms of identity and in terms of politics at the table making editorial decisions and uh, would continue to assert that. But I also think we're in an era where when we work very hard to talk about and represent marginalized communities, that can be perceived as something that's very political and that, from my perspective, it isn't something we should worry about. So it all gets very confusing, at least to me, and perhaps even more confusing to you, because, as you no doubt know now, Deborah Clark, the executive producer and vice president of Marketplace, who uh, who did the direct firing of you, had had a conversation not long ago with the Neiman Journalism Lab about what Marketplace's philosophy was and said, Marketplace has always been different than other news programs on public radio, and we don't, as a shop, believe in the view from nowhere. 
I, I think that uh, that has real limitations. I think that you see, you can see and hear that in the voice that we have on the air, which is different, and you can see it on social media. The view from nowhere is a Jay Rosen term that basically is about kind of a, a feigned objectivity and neutrality in the face of or in the teeth of things that are positions that are genuinely contrasting values. So it seemed as though Deborah Clark was saying, well, we don't even really subscribe to this position of blind neutrality, you know, or blindfolded neutrality. And, and, and also, you know, Kai Rizdahl, the host of the show, has uh, tweeted with a picture of Trump and a link to a Washington Post article to those who say, let's wait and see, or maybe it won't be as bad as you think or stay hopeful. I'm having none of it. So this would appear to be the most prominently recognizable figure on this show saying an opinion, you know, he's not having anything of hopefulness about the Trump administration. You've got the executive who fired you saying, well, we don't really do that real baseline neutrality stuff. It's a much more nuanced thing for us. So do you know what's different about that from what you got in so much trouble for? I don't. And and I think that's uh, why I was so caught off guard by my initial suspension and the initial reaction to my blog is because I think the work that I'd done for Marketplace had had all, you know, for, for the airwaves had all been very much in the spirit and my voice, you know, fit in quite well there in the way that because the show has, has worked hard to you know, have sort of a, a variety in terms of the voices and allow the reporters to bring our own sensibilities and uh, a little bit of transparency about who we are to our work that uh, I had had a really positive experience sort of working in that style with Marketplace and didn't think that the ideas that I put out in the post would be particularly objectionable uh, exactly for that reason. So there's maybe one piece of this we haven't alluded to, which is that you're a transgender person. Is that part of why it seemed as though in the stuff that you wrote that that was part of this, that somehow or other your identity was somewhat inseparable from some of the things you were writing on the Medium blog. Yeah, and I think not, uh, you know, I think that argument has been misunderstood sometimes to be sort of saying, you know, anybody who's sort of quote unquote diverse or quote unquote marginalized or oppressed can't be neutral in sort of a unique way. And for me, it's more being transgender is kind of my particular experience of how I came to the conclusion that no one can be neutral. And in some ways, I see that as from a pretty outsider perspective. Um, Transgender people have gotten a lot of really lousy coverage in the mainstream media. And I came out as trans more than 15 years ago, quite a while before there really was very much mainstream media coverage. And So I think I was able to see, you know, when I started working in the media, kind of how important it was to have trans voices at the table in order to change that conversation. And that, in fact, there had been a bias kind of against fair and comprehensive coverage of trans people uh, as sort of the whole people that we are. That has gradually started to change because of activism and because of increasing diversity and representation within journalism. And so for me, it's sort of an emperor has no clothes situation around around the matter of bias, because it's always been 
so clear that uh, that there is a bias and sort of a set of assumptions that happens when you have a homogenous newsroom without certain people at the table. And, and I think we see a lot of the same issues around race, around disability, which is a severely underreported sort of community and whole set of issues that we don't hear about very much in the mainstream news media, even though there are a lot, a lot of disabled people. And, and I suspect that that's, that that is a sort of bias that exists against seeing those stories as important because of who's at the table. And and so, yeah, I don't think that I'm uniquely non-neutral. I think everyone is kind of non-neutral in how we bring uh, story ideas and how we curate those ideas and um, that those conversations should be even more kind of alive and, and vibrant right now as we think about how to cover this administration. All right. Well, Lewis Wallace, it's great to talk to you. Sorry it's under these circumstances and looking forward to whatever your next venture is. Thank you so much. We're going to take a little break here. Some very nice people are going to ask you to raise money to help support not only this station, but this program. I mean, we've been talking about what our mission is. So if you like our mission, it would be good if you gave during this particular break. It kind of goes on our side of the ledger. We get a little extra credit for it. So please do that. And then we're going to come back with a conversation with one of America's most famous and trailblazing journalists, Rolling Stones, Matt Taibbi, right after this very nice pledge break. He's a legendary journalist He'll ask the questions and insist you give the answers he's been looking for But he climbs in bed alone tonight and hopes dreams Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Ali Oshinsky. The part of Bill Curry was played by Marty McFly. Catch all of our shows at wnpr.org slash Colin and find us on Twitter and Facebook. On tomorrow's show, we revisit a conversation with Ira Glass from This American Life. And now... Back to Colin. Joining our conversation is Matt Taibbi. He, of course, is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone and the author, most relevantly and most recently, of Insane Clown President, Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. Matt Taibbi, welcome to our conversation. Well, thanks for having me on. So this um, book is uh, all about trying to cover this campaign, so it's about trying to be a journalist uh, in this campaign environment. There are very, some, some very specific things said about the state of journalism, but I want to bleed it over a little bit uh, in, into the present environment, too, because a lot of the same struggles are taking place. Just for example, we'll, we'll just use this as kind of a, an autopsy uh, corpse. Last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, when President Trump announced his Supreme Court pick, everybody preempted for him, right? Uh, it's 8 o'clock at night. Uh, in the past, presidents, short of declaring war, literally can't get the networks to do stuff like this, and certainly not for something as pedestrian as the Supreme Court pick. Not that that's pedestrian, but it just it hasn't warranted that kind of level of scrutiny. Right. So, so you have this sort of odd choice. Either you are going to ignore an event at which there may be some kind of, in fact, there almost certainly will be some kind of aberrant behavior, or you're going to give him what he wants in a way that doesn't feel good. I don't know. What do you think of the way the media handles this problem? Well, it's, it's a difficult question because it's, it's kind of not up to the media. It's a, it's a built-in problem with the, the system of commercial media. I mean, I think if you went back 40 or 50 years and at a, to a time when the networks understood that news programs were basically supposed to be loss leaders and 
they were supposed to make their money elsewhere through sports or entertainment or whatever, you know, then you might have the ethical dilemma of how do we cover this administration. But now everybody needs to make money, or at least everybody has resigned themselves to the idea that they have to make money. And so what do you do about Trump? Because Trump is a moneymaker. He, he has the Howard Stern effect in the sense that he attracts people from both parties to watch him, people who hate him and people who love him, both, both watch. And he's a goldmine, as CBS President Les Moonves confessed last year. You know, he's, he may not be good for the country, but he's great for, for business. Have you been surprised by the way that the person that you depict in this book is essentially unchanged since becoming president? I mean, I think there, were, there was, like inside me, there was this notion, well, I mean, obviously he's still going to be Donald Trump. On the other hand, there's there's a certain way that presidents act, you know, and, and he, he'll have to conform at least to some of that. He'll have to kind of tone down his act and, and take on some of the gravitas that a president has. And, you know, watching him talk about, you know, Black History Month or stand in front of the memorial wall of the CIA and, and talk about, you know, vote counts and things that all kinds of self-aggrandizing things that have nothing to do with the place that he's standing. I, I see no sign of, of it. Are you surprised at how little he's toned down his act? A little bit, because, again, this was something that was really hard to tell from watching him, even for a long period of time. Clearly, this is a, a narcissistic personality, and anybody, you know, who's familiar with, with, with that disorder knows that it's not, a, it's not a condition that gets better, and in fact, it, you know, it's, it's prone to get worse with more and more attention. So he's someone who is not terribly self-aware, is not, you know, not terribly receptive to criticism, and the likelihood that he is going to be provoked by something that Arnold Schwarzenegger says or something that's said by a small-town newspaper writer like, you know, he was going after the Manchester Union leader editor for a while there last year. You know, that's just who he is. He he is obsessively fixated on what people say about him. Although the thing that I couldn't tell from the campaign trail was how much how much of this was an act that he was stoking because he thought it was working as a camp as a candidate and as a former reality star and you know would he just settle down to to conduct the business of the presidency once he became president well it's it's pretty clear that it wasn't that much of an act you know you Matt Taibbi have choices that you'll be having to make in the years ahead and and so is it Emoluments? Is it sort of the peculiar role of Steve Bannon this kind of not confirmable guy who's in the, on the National Security Council, taxes, I mean, the fact that we don't see the tax returns still, uh, Russia. I mean, it, it's like a Cheesecake Factory menu of possibilities for a journalist. Are, are there things that are particularly high on your list? So I, I've just gotten a kind of a new assignment, which is that I'm going to be doing like a regular monthly sort of feature on just trying to encapsulate everything that goes on uh, each month of the Trump administration. And I think m my strategy for that is going to be, on the one hand, to pick maybe one issue and take a deep dive into it and try to just get as factual as possible, like into, you know, what he does with the rollback of Dodd-Frank, for instance, uh, or, you know, the financial services industry. And then side by side with that, the one thing that magazines can do that other people can't do is do like a long narrative to give people a sense of the sort of manic succession of events of, of his presidency. So I think what 
that what you have to do with with Trump is try to not get distracted by all the the craziness and the hype and just focus on what is he actually doing you know like policy wise like that's probably the first step you know then there's other challenges like trying to capture the insanity and humor and and tragedy of all of, all of it. The uh, editor-in-chief of Reuters put a, kind of an interesting statement over the past week or so in which he, he basically said a lot of the same things that you're saying right now. But the, the gloss he put on it is, you know, we shouldn't make too big a deal out of how adversarial things are between the presidency and the press right now or how incredibly difficult things are or how we're being shut out of stories. You know, at Reuters, we cover regimes all over the world that are even more more hostile to the press and, you know, can very easily lock you up or, you know, or, or shut you down. And we don't make that the story. That's not the story. We're just cultivating sources going behind the backs of the autocrats and trying to get the stories and, and that we shouldn't really be going on and on about how hostile to the press this administration is. And, and I, I sense that's a little bit your attitude, too. Yeah, totally. I, I think it makes us look bad if we if we make a big deal out of it. We're supposed to be the not that we are tough guys, but this is the one thing we're supposed to be able to handle is an adversarial politician. That's our job, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we don't, if, if we're not ready for that, then we shouldn't be doing this for a living. Uh, fr- frankly, frankly, the idea that we, m- we might get booted out of the White House press pool or that we won't get to go on cushy junkets to, you know, on presidential trips overseas or, you know, that we don't, won't have nice lunches served for us when we go, uh, you know, to presidential functions. Like, so what? You know, our, it's not our job to be, uh, I think actually that's one of the things that got us into this mess was the coziness between politicians and, and, and the media. So, so what if we're on the outside? And, and the, that editor of Reuters is exactly right. If you've ever had the experience of working overseas in autocratic regimes, as, as I have, you know, it, it gets a lot worse than this. I mean, you know, I, when I lived, worked in Russia, People I knew, friends of mine, Russian reporters, would write things one day, and there'd be people banging down their door or, or you know, threatening their lives within within minutes. It's you know, we're not even anywhere close to that. So um, this, we should be able to take this. Back to the book for a second. So, uh, and once again, we're talking to Matt Taibbi. Uh, the new book is Insane Clown President, Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. One of the things that I've struggled with, I was teaching a course at Trinity College in Hartford during the campaign about how the media covers the election. And at the end, I said to the students, you should just go get your money back or something. It's like everything I told you was wrong, you know, and it didn't come out right. And we spent you know, a week really, you know, working hard at looking at data journalism and looking at 538 and Nate Silver in particular, you know, and, and as you point out in the book, I mean, we all got to, I don't know. I feel like I've been dating Nate Silver and now I've had a really bad breakup with him. Like I don't want to take his calls anymore. I don't want him to sit next to me at the movies, you know, and, and, I wonder, as we look forward to either 2018 or 2020, whether we're going to treat all of this kind of information the same way that we did. We invested. I really felt as though, and I know that he's, you know, he, he did sort of a percentage thing, as a lot of the data people did, and the percentage chance of, of Trump winning went up. But I listened to the podcast. I read the text. You know, he didn't have a handle on this election any more than anybody else did. And I wonder, as we go forward, you know, how how we handle this kind of material that seems so important to us over the last few cycles. And not to go back to that and not to dump on them too much, but they consistently were negative about Trump's chances even of winning the nomination, even when the polls seemed to suggest otherwise. 
they kind of went against, I think, even their own and their own data in the early part of the campaign. Look, I, I got fooled too, and this is something that I write about in the book: is that I fell for a lot of the popular con- misconceptions that came out of a lot of this data analysis. And one of the things that happens when you hang around people who do politics for a living is, you know, they they are very much in love with the procedures and the methodology and you know the saber metrics of of politics and i got sat down by somebody at at the rnc from you know who was actually a democratic operative who just gave me a whole spiel about the you know the 19 different things that had had to happen demographically for trump to win and how it was it was mathematically impossible and i fell for it you know i i i just went for a hook line and sinker Whereas if you were just out there in the campaign trail and you watched the response to the two different campaigns, there's no way that you could have been convinced that Trump was losing, you know, or at least losing by a lot. It, it looked dramatically in Trump's favor if you were just watching. So uh, I think that's something we have to be careful of in the future is, you know, take the temperature of people, talk, actually talk to them. You know, read their emotions, and as opposed to they're just their approval or disapproval, that's something you can't do with numbers. Right, but that's also the problem with the campaign trail. The campaign trail is the campaign trail. And another Rolling Stone writer from long ago, Timothy Krauss, wrote The Boys on the Bus, where you really got a sense of what pack journalism could be like, where basically a whole bunch of people are getting off the same plane or the same bus or, or whatever and going to the same place and absorbing the same information. And I felt, you know, this time, to, to the extent that I was well-informed at all in the 2016 cycle, some Sometimes it was by people like George Saunders or or Dave Eggers or I mean people who basically write fiction for a living but are very interested in the narratives of other people. Just kind of once again going out talking to people. In some ways, I feel like the campaign trail was a good place to be in the sense that you just described, where you could see a certain kind of energy exist in one place and not the other. But in some ways, it, the better place to be was off the campaign trail or a little ways off the campaign trail, just talking to actual people. Yeah. Well, no, you have to do. You have to do both things. This is something I've been writing out. I've, you know, I've been doing campaign trail journalism for 12, I guess this, this is my fourth campaign. So, And I've, from the start, uh, you know, this has been a problem that I've had with it, is that you know, you're never in one place long enough to really get a flavor for what's going through people's minds. You get these little snippets of conversations when, you, when you're stuck on the bus. It was such an issue for me that when I, I was on my first assignment, what I would do when I got to a city is I would escape the press pool and I would run a mile in any direction and just randomly start knocking on people's doors and asking them what they were doing <laughs> so that it was I was trying to get a countervailing you know uh, impression as, as opposed to what the campaign was giving you but yeah you have to talk to people and you have to find out what people are saying but I think there are things that you can glean even so just from going to the events and you know one of the things is you know is the candidate are people responding to the candidate in person and you do have to pay attention to that because it, it, it resonates. You know, I think I, I talked to Bernie Sanders about that after the campaign, and and he he spoke about how you know the intimate experience of seeing somebody in person and reacting to it is is the single most the single biggest determining factor in whether a person wins or loses an election. And we should we should have listened to that this time. As we close, Matt Taibbi, let's violate the Reuters editor-in-chief principle that we just set. I mean, from a certain point of view, it doesn't matter how Matt Taibbi feels or whether he's sleeping well or not or whether he is pessimistic or optimistic about the one or two years that lie ahead. But let me ask that question anyway, even if it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, how, how is all this sitting with you these days? Well, 
as a citizen, I'm horrified by the whole thing. I I I think it's uh, you know I don't I don't see any cause for optimism. The only thing that I saw that was interesting and made me feel a little bit hopeful about the future was that a lot of young people on both sides of the aisle were were really really passionate and interested in politics for the first time and and willing to think for themselves about it, which is a good thing. But you know I I, I think what we're seeing right now is this kind of worsening polarization and this problem that we have where we're not arguing over the same set of facts anymore, that problem is just getting worse and worse by the day, where we can't even agree on what we're arguing about anymore. And, you know, it's, it's going to be tough for the country to, to kind of heal itself until it fixes that issue. I think. Don't you think? I mean, I don't know. That's how I feel. Well, yeah, I think, you know, what our instincts tell us is that it has to get a lot worse before it gets better. In a way, it's like what we know about alcoholism or other forms of addiction. Now it's this thing we just have to ride down to its bottom (laughs) before we can bounce back up. It doesn't seem as though incremental improvement is anywhere on the menu. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's exactly the metaphor that, yeah, Clearly, the bottom is rushing up at us right now, uh, <laughs> but we haven't hit it yet. And, uh, you know, it's scary. So it's going to be a long ride down. And this is something that, you know, again, in my experience living overseas, and I lived in a collapsed superpower for 11 years. And people, I think, aren't cognizant of how, how bad it can get and how far you have to fall when, when things really start to go wrong in a country that's as high-functioning as ours relatively is, that's my real worry, you know, going forward. All right. On that elevating note, uh, <laughs> Matt Taibbi, the book is Insane Clown President. You have to have something to read on the way down. Read his dispatches from the 2016 circus. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks a lot, Colin. You don't look to me for solutions. I'm just a journalist. I'm a dispassionate observer of the human.